I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. It's Friday. That means it's time to make sense of the biggest local and statewide stories in our weekly news recap with local journalists working on stories like these. With 365 days behind us since the first bus dropped off migrants in Chicago, living arrangements for asylum seekers is still a hot button issue. Angry words and heated confrontation over plans to house migrants steps from people's front doors. Democratic lawmakers have come together to call on President Biden to fast track work permits. A cloud of mystery still hangs over the shooting incident at guaranteed rate The lawyer for one of the women shot during a White Sox game Friday night releasing a statement denying his client brought a gun into Sox Park. Our panel this week includes Brandis Friedman, co-anchor and correspondent of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, Alice Yin, Chicago Tribune political reporter, and Patrick Smith, criminal justice reporter for WBEZ. Now, we don't usually start with sports, but the White Sox have been leading a lot of headlines this week. Patrick, I want to get into the bizarre incident at the White Sox game Friday night. I, I still can't get over the fact that two people at this week's game were shot, but the game continued. Yeah, it's been it's been about a week uh, since this happened. There were two women. Uh, probably most people listening now are aware of this, but but we want to get our facts straight here, especially because there are a lot of facts that are still not known about this. <laughs> so two, true. Two women who were struck by bullets around 7.30 p.m. a week ago Friday they were sitting near Section 161 in Guaranteed Rate Field. The White Sox were playing the Oakland Athletics. One woman uh, suffered two gunshot wounds to the right leg. One of the bullets traveled through her thigh. The other struck her calf and became lodged in her th- shin. Another woman was grazed in the abdomen by oh a bullet. Gosh. She was 26 years old. Is 26 years old. Uh, denied. Uh, you know, refused medical treatment. Uh, and that's what we know. We know that these two women were injured by gunfire. We know very little else, including but, but where still there were several from. theories about what happened. Yes, yes, several <laughs> theories about what happened. I mean, all I think boiling down to the fact that that we still don't know if these shots came from inside or outside of the ballpark, which is like obviously kind of the main thing that still needs to be figured out here, so that police and the White Sox and all of us can. Start to try to piece together. It's kind what of a big deal. Actually, and where did it come here? from? Yeah, and we're he- we're hearing different stuff about that too, yeah. right? Because you know, at first there were headlines. It could have come from a mile away, and that just sounds ridiculous. But we hear the police department saying that you know it had to have come from inside. Mm-hmm. They've ruled out the possibility that it's come from outside. But then just yesterday, Jerry Reinsdorf was saying that there's no way it could have come from inside the ballpark. I guess you know, kind of crediting the security there, saying there's no yeah. way that security could have allowed something like that to happen. Yeah, and, but and, it has. And Reinsdorf said that that interim superintendent Waller told him, you know, we haven't ruled it out. Even though Waller told told reporters, including we had a reporter there who, on Monday, Waller said we've all but ruled out that these shots came from outside of the ballpark. Yesterday, Reinsdorf saying, no, no, you can call Waller. He says, no, we haven't ruled anything out My yet. My goodness. And he's yeah, as you're saying, Brandis Reinsdorf, the the owner of the White Sox, is saying there's he can't see any way that these these shots came from inside the park. Um, and there was also talk, Pat, of, of of the gunshot being self-inflicted. Yes, the, the, that is that a theory. she shot herself. That's a theory that I've heard a lot. That this was a you know an accident, like a gun in a pocket or but something. But she denies like that. even bringing one in. She denies bringing a gun in. You know, ABC Seven I think reported that they had law enforcement uh, or or law enforcement experts who said the pattern of the wounds would indicate that this was an accidental self-inflicted gunshot. But then ABC Seven, I believe it was ABC, had. 
uh, law enforcement sources saying that her clothing, this woman who was injured, didn't show up for gunpowder residue, which would indicate that, in fact, the gun was not on yeah. her person. Is, is your head hurting as when, much as mine? <laughs> <shot> <laughs> <happened>. <laughs> and she's um, also gotten an attorney to, you yeah. know, to represent her as well, of saying course. that, you know, she didn't bring a gun in and they weren't self-inflicted. So yeah. she's taking it seriously. Right. When you yeah. when you first start to hear, like, an attorney issued a statement denying, it sounds like, eh, what's that about? But then at the same time, if you didn't bring a gun in and you got shot at a White Sox game, you're probably lawyering up to, to get some money out yeah. of it. So it's not, like, suspicious Especially that she Especially when people are pointing the fingers. Yeah, I mean, there th- this sort of lack of knowledge has led to a lot of uh, rumor-mongering rumor <laughs> yeah, and kind of wild theories being put out there. What was on my mind, and tell me what you think, Alice, I was struggling to comprehend how the game continued mm-hmm. after a shooting. Yeah, no, we found out Saturday, um, the morning after that, uh, after the after police responded to the woman wounded, they, uh, the, a commander instructed requested that the White Sox stop the game. I think this is around the fourth inning, and the White Sox did not listen. They continued the game. No one, like other people, did not know even like one section over that people had been shot. And right. then obviously you got that big sign saying Vanilla Ice concert canceled mm. due to technical difficulties. I think that. Probably it's not a good look for the White Sox. That that is how they approached it. But um, it kind of just shows there was dysfunction between CPD and the team, um, even the night of, and now they're still duking it out in public. Both women were CPS teachers at uh, Graham Elementary School. Did you know that, Brenda? I didn't know where they were, but I knew that uh, that the, I'm not sure if it was the district or the union that did confirm that. I didn't realize it was both of them. And it it was like a group of like 30 educators who were celebrating sort of return to school, I believe, sort of all together, which is why you had these employees there. And I will say... um, Having been to White Sox games when there's like a Friday night concert, I'd imagine many of the people in the stands were there much more for the Vanilla Ice concert than for the duel <laughs> between the White Sox. two of the worst teams in baseball <laughs> well, playing. So, what are other. the White Sox saying about all of this? Patrick? Well, well, as we as we heard, you know, as we were just talking about, and Brand, Brandis brought up, you know, Reinsdorf, uh, the owner, spoke yesterday and said he can't imagine that these shots came right. from within the park. Said, you know, the superintendent told him they haven't ruled out. Gunfire coming from outside the park, despite what the superintendent said on Monday. And and we know that, that they've answered questions about their security by essentially saying, um, you know, we review our security after every incident. But right now we don't know anything about what happened here. So we don't know. You know, there's no reason they, they're saying for them to believe that their security failed in this instance since they're right. insisting that this came from outside of the ballpark. Well, I'm going to keep you on the White Sox beat, Patrick. Yeah, I'm here. The team named a new general manager. What do we know about Chris Getz? So Chris Getz, he's 40 years old, a former White Sox player. He spent, uh, like, parts of two seasons with the White Sox, drafted um, drafted by the White Sox, and had, a, I think, a seven-year baseball career, uh, playing career. Mm-hmm. He's been in the White Sox organization for seven years um, in charge of player development, uh, was kind of seen as as Reinsdorf, kind of somebody who Reinsdorf had long thought of as, as a GM candidate. I will say as a Detroit Tigers fan, <laughs> the idea of the White Sox staying in-house with this organization is awesome. I think, yes, definitely keep, keep going to that same brain trust that has gotten you to the point you're at now. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that, that you can – I mean – the White Sox have made all sorts of trades and acquired all sorts of, of amazing prospects who some of them are great, some of them are not, but the team is just not showing up on the field the way people thought they would. So I'm not sure if picking your player development guy and elevating him makes the most sense. But, I hear but a lot of people are upset in the comments online, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, Alice, let's stick with baseball for a minute, but we'll, we'll move from the south side to the north side. No, I'm not talking about the Cubs. I'm talking about this story that has to do with a Little League coach. 
What are the details? Yeah, um, it seems, uh, as reported by Block Club, that this uh, coach, his team lost a Little League game, and there, after the game there was supposed to be a picnic where kids were just playing and uh, just, you know, a, a chill social uh, setting, but um, he, he allegedly uh, came to the parking lot and got into a dispute with a man and woman and flashed um, a gun at them. Uh, it seems he apparently left and came back later, um, and then he was, you know, arrested and charged accordingly, and uh, the Little League uh, organization has, you know, banned him from Horner Park um, and put up signs, you know, warning people to, warning the team members that he's no longer affiliated. Yeah, wow. So as a mom, I've been to plenty of sports games for my kids. <laughs> and the tensions can get, you know, they can rise at times, but I've never seen anything like this, not in person. Have you? I've never seen it happen. I mean, my kids aren't quite into sports yet, but, you know, I know people's kids are, obviously. I yeah. live in the suburbs and sports happen, and I've never heard anything like that. I mean, I we've done it. soccer. I've been the basketball mom, and it's been heated. I mean, I've been the one, uh, no shame, that's like up on the sidelines, like, what are, are you doing? paying attention, ref? Like, you know, I've done that. But You're I'm, screaming at a teenager. But you don't go, you don't go get a right gun and, and come back and flash no, no, at I another don't parent. Scream. Sasha doesn't scream at kids. Okay. <laughs> Let's not, not get that message out there. Unless they're your own kids. Well, um, there have been instances, not in Chicago, but there have been instances nationally of of, of gunfire and and even murders uh, around youth sports. Uh, yeah. Well, wow. I really am bringing the mood down here, but it's, but but well, I, you, you, we brought on the crime guys. It's, so. it's the it's the combo right yeah. of our prolifer- proliferation of guns and the fact that people take mm-hmm. these youth sports too damn seriously. They do. They do. All right, let's shift gears here, Alice. This week is marking the one year anniversary of that first group of migrants who were bused here from Texas. What's the latest on this crisis? Yeah, um, I think what is notable, you know, from the mayor's side is this was um, a marked uh, shift in tone on how he's discussed this issue. Uh, You know, during the campaign trail, when uh, the topic of migrants did come up, he repeatedly said, um, at my dinner table, there's enough for everyone in the city of Chicago. He would, you know, make analogies of food to um, just show how inclusive his table is. But this week, he said, um, a message to Joe, to President Biden um, in the federal government. Let me state this clearly. Uh, the city of Chicago cannot go on welcoming new arrivals safely and capably. Um, and then he listed, you know, what he requires from the federal government, uh, you know, to continue this operation. But um, it is a clear message that this yeah. is no longer sustainable, that um, if more help is not uh, given, that... Yeah. Um, the city might not be able to welcome anyone. Yeah, we'll yeah. dig more into some of those requests in, in a moment, Alice. But, but Brandis, I want to turn to uh, the shelter situation, right? Because that, that is what we're trying to do. We're trying to house, what so far, more than 13,000 migrants who've arrived here. And the city's getting closer to purchasing a massive property that's just blocks from your second home, Channel 11 <laughs> Studio. <laughs> second home, first home. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's down the street, right? It's, it's Foster, and it's just next to um, one of CTA's bus yards, right? And I, you know, I, I drive by this place with frequency. Um, and as my colleague Heather Sharon is reporting, I think the plan is the city uh, is planning on buying it for $1.5 million from the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, because I think um, it's a former uh, U.S. Marine Corps training building, and I think the Marines have let it go or gotten out of their lease or for whatever reason, they're no longer using it. And so um, I think city officials are saying that, you know, if this is approved by the city council within a month um, after some repairs are made, then they can start moving, uh, you know, some of the migrants who are still sheltering at airports for crying out loud yeah. can move them into the shelter there. Um, and it sits, you know, it's uh, there's part of the river is up there. I forget which part, you know, parkland. And then, you know, just next door, there's obviously a, a bunch of neighborhoods, a bunch of a residential area. 
And it's down the street from um, a hospital as well. I want to say Swedish Covenant. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this could be another thing. So far, I have not heard from our neighbors um, because obviously when this has happened repeatedly across the city um, where the city tries to stand up a shelter, the neighbors have something to say. Right. Um, and, may you know, I think it was in Edgewater. They were com- concerned about um, park district park, you know, programming being moved. Yeah. Obviously, we hear it happening in other parts of the city as well. There have been Southside. folks speaking out everywhere, including uh, the East Hyde Park neighborhood, Alice. There was a community forum this week week, actually. What, what was that about? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my colleague covering it, it sounded very um, tense as your previous meetings have gone that um, I've also seen uh, where, um, you know, residents, they aired the usual concerns about, uh, you know, crime and resources. But, you know, when you uh, have these meetings in neighborhoods on the south side, I think there also is the extra layer of uh, why, where, where were these resources for our black residents, for our homeless residents? Um, and there also, I think, still is some bitterness and tension from how the Lightfoot administration, when they first proposed some shelters on the South Side, they proposed them in uh, shuttered CPS schools like Wadsworth and South Shore High Mm -hmm. School uh, that the black community fought to keep. And I think ever since then, it's just been kind of hard to repair that. But still hearing complaints from aldermen about, you know, not getting a heads up and not uh, being uh, shut out of the process. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, residents from the South Side to the Gold Coast are all complaining about increased criminal activity in their neighborhoods uh, that they're saying is because of migrants. Any evidence of that? Well, you know, I have certainly reported on and other outlets have reported on specific incidents or instances where migrants uh, allegedly, you know, committed different ac- uh, criminal activity. Uh, 20th Ward Alder person Jeanette Taylor has said the migrant shelter in Woodlawn has become a magnet for crime. Um, I haven't seen uh, data that says like, oh, yeah, the migrants are create are, are causing any sort of crime spike. But I certainly wouldn't deny the sort of lived experience of the people who who say they're witnessing criminal activities. And we've certainly seen individual instances where that happens. I don't think that's a shock when you've got a big group, big groups of people that are kind of in a chaotic and and unstructured environment in plopped into new places. Yeah. Alice, let's get back into our conversation about these politicians asking for help Mm -hmm. with the migrant situation. There was this push to speed up work permits. Here's what Governor Pritzker had to say about that. These are folks who entered the United States with legal authorization, including young families with children and seniors. Most often they lack sponsors and have no shelter, uh, and they don't have any resources to obtain it. Uh, They have no immediate legal pathway to work. The governor joins, of course, Mayor Johnson and other politicians calling for President Biden to give migrants authorization to work. Here is Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. These people are ready to help, and we should give them that chance. I joined with the governor and the mayor and others who say to President Biden, give us the, the authority and we will move forward to find jobs that will not take jobs away from Americans, but create a better America in the future. So you covered the story this week. What else is going on at this press conference? Yeah, um, I think it was, uh, you know, a market stand that um, all the, you know, Illinois congressional delegation, the governor, the mayor were um, taking together to send a message to the White House saying we need more help and just really highlighting this mismatch in the labor market where they're, you know, having some friends in the industry. There there are a lot of uh, restaurants and other businesses, small businesses that are hiring and they're having trouble finding workers. And here you have 
thousands of people ready and able to work. But, um, you know, to talk a bit from the federal, the White House's point of view, um, I, I, I think there is um, a lot of confusion on how to navigate both the asylum application process and um, these work authorizations. Mm, okay. And um, it seems that a lot of migrants aren't even applying or going through that process because they don't know how, they, they haven't been given help, and it's all just kind of a mess. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, currently, migrants are not able to work, Correct. right? That, that is the bottom line, or not legally. Yes. Uh, so so we're clear, would these permits allow them to take any job, or is, are these jobs within certain industries? Um, I, I, I don't believe they're within certain industries, but I think um, the, the DHS can make a case that if there is a increased need of uh, certain services in um, various areas, they can speed up the authorization right. process. Like industries is, having a harder time to fill right. positions, right? Yeah. Such as like warehouses, healthcare, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it seem like Washington might fast track these permits, these work permits? Um, I, I don't know. This is like the loudest that like mayors across the U.S., like in New York too, are calling for these. So um, there is increased pressure, but it seems like the process might be so convoluted, there might not be an immediate solution. And as you mentioned earlier, Mayor Johnson, he's joining all these politicians and asking for help. The city of Chicago cannot go on welcoming new arrivals safely and capably without significant support and immigration policy changes. So is he asking for anything other than the work permits um, from he the federal government? Uh, he hasn't really like come out publicly talking about specific asks. Um, I know that many um, leaders in Illinois have called for uh, President Biden to declare, um, a, I think it was called a disaster proclamation to free up more federal funds. Um, and I know, you know, privately there is this concern that Chicago is hosting the DNC next year. How, yeah. I don't want to say embarrassing, but like how much of an egg on the Democrats' face would it be that we have this humanitarian crisis and we're not able to take care of our most vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. I'll throw it out to the rest of you, right? We're, we're planning for next summer's DNC. I mean, do you think this migrant crisis is going away, Brandis, or might it actually get worse? I, I think the Johnson administration has predicted that it's going to worsen. Um, I think they're under the impression that Texas, I mean, because Texas is going to, you know, accelerate or at least, you know, keep a steady drive, literally a drive of buses coming almost daily um, as has been the case since, I think, May, when Johnson took office, um, of more and more migrants arriving, right? Yeah. And if if the city of Chicago was already this far behind the ball, right, and just cannot keep up with the steady stream of people who are arriving, I don't see how they're going to be able to, like, to, you know, to get in front of it uh, within the year. Yeah, it's not looking good. Give us some hope, Patrick. Oh, boy. I mean, I, you know, I don't think there's anything about the, the political climate or the, the other factors that are causing this issue. Not, I don't see what would yeah. change about that in a year. I mean, the thing, the thing that reporters like Alice will be looking for when we get closer to the convention will be if the city makes efforts to kind of try to hide the problem away, mm. uh, essentially, which can be can can, can We've seen that happen before. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's shift gears here. Uh, new report had startling data about hate crimes in the Chicago area. Fill us in, Patrick. Yeah, the, the Sun-Times reported on this. Uh, it's a report from the, uh, the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, Extremism at California State University in San Bernardino. Uh, they found that Chicago recorded its highest number of hate crimes in nearly three decades last year, the most targeted groups being black people and Jewish people. Um, and and, and, and it's, it's, the numbers are obviously incredibly grim, um, and they, they reflect what you, you hear anecdotally from people about, yeah. about a feeling— uh, you know, heightened tension and, and more more sort of animosity that they're feeling. I will say I, I, I want to just caution about the data specifically, which is that, you know, I, I'm not denying at all that this is an issue. But when you've got 
cases where some of the numbers are like single digits, like like this this jump that they're talking about. In some cases, it's like from six incidents in 2021 mm-hmm. to 36 incidents in 2022, mm-hmm. which is significant. But when you're talking about single digits like that, the data might be, um, you know, it might be a little murky right. there. Like, for instance, that report said there was a 340 percent jump in reported hate crimes against white people in Chicago. It was one of the highest. I'm not saying there aren't hate crimes against white people, but those sorts of numbers make you go, OK, is this just like people yeah. are reporting it more? So so right. I guess I don't have a like hard and strong point to make besides that, like, I think we should always have some sort of nuance and skepticism with these. Yeah, I mean, anytime I hear any type of hate crime data, I'm always mindful of the fact that not everything is getting reported right. in the first place. Right. Well, and, and it said that, you know, the most hate crimes that were reported against black and Jewish people. And that just tells me that black and Jewish people are doing the most reporting. Right. Because right. I'm kind of surprised in like this post covert post covert world. I said that with air quotes, everybody. Um you know, that it, we don't hear more about Asian-American reports, right? Because we've certainly discussed that a whole good bit um, over the last few years yeah. um, in, in other, you know, other marginalized communities as well. All right. Sticking with you, Brandis, uh, this is a bizarre one. A local TV news crew that was covering crime, well, they actually became the story and made national headlines. I saw that <laughs> because I heard about it locally, right? And I was like, oh, my goodness, do I know them? Turns out I actually do. Um, <laughs> and then... Um, and it made national headlines, right? And, I mean, I feel like this is not the first time as, you know, a TV news reporter. I have heard my colleagues, you know, their bags have gotten stolen out of the live truck um, or camera has gotten stolen before out mm-hmm. of the out of the, the unit, whatever it might be. Um, and for them, it you know, it's a little bit different, though, when it's, you know, a crime against your person, right, where someone pulls a gun on you. Yeah, um, I mean, they, like they were reporting on a string of robberies and then became, yeah. ended up robbed. It is probably the very people that they were reporting on who robbed them is my guess, right, um, yes. which which is unfortunate. Um, you know, the, I, I talked to the reporter. He's a tough guy. He's fine, thankfully. Um, yeah, they're safe. Good, thankfully. But, yeah, yeah. And, and the station's not revealing their names right now and keeping keeping that, you know, protected for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, but it, it makes us all kind of think, you know, it could be any of us. I'm, I'm glad they're safe. It's also not the national news that we want to make here in Chicago Darn as well. It. It's, it's already. <laughs> but it's the news the nation wants from us. It is the news the nation expects yes. from Chicago, sadly. Um, of course, you know, uh, to Brandis's point, again, I want to underscore TV crews. They're walking around with expensive equipment, right? So I imagine a lot of newsrooms right now across the city, they're talking about this, right? Just trying to keep their things safe. I would imagine they are, but it's probably something that they've, they've already talked about, right? Because it's not the first time that this has happened to a news crew. Um, it, I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, robbed personally versus your stuff just taken out of the van when you weren't looking. True. Or, and even though the van was locked, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I used to be one of those reporters when I was in D.C. I'd leave my bag in the car Same. and just take a note, you know, a notepad yeah. and, yeah. and my phone and off I go uh, until I heard, oh, the morning crew, their stuff got stolen. And it happens at those funny hours as well, yeah. right? You know, this one, this was a morning crew and they were working at 5 a.m. in the morning mm-hmm. when, you know, it might be a little bit dark. It's a little bit quiet. When I used to VJ, I mean, I didn't have a crew, so it was me. And just sheer, you know, just not having enough shoulders on my body to carry carry a tripod and camera and my purse. Mm -hmm. I would just leave. I just got comfortable leaving my purse in the Sprinter, you know. Um, So, yeah, that's a good reminder for us all. For sure. Uh, Alice, the police were called over to the Northwest Side's Shuttered Portage Theater on Saturday night. What was that about? Um, yeah, they were. Um, they got reports of an illegal gathering that turned out to be um, an underground rave hosted by, I, I want to say organization, but I'm not really sure how it works, but it's called Redline Chicago, and they, I guess, advertise all over uh, Facebook and other social media, um, which 
I guess it's kind of new in the underground rave scene because like that's always existed in mm-hmm. on the northwest side. But I don't when know you what you're talking it, about. I go to underground raves all the time. Excuse me. <laughs> um, I know nothing about these these uh, underground. What's a rave? Raves. Sorry, Alice, go on. Um, yeah, She's I like, mean, this happens all the time. It does. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I guess I guess it also kind of ties to like the youth gatherings too, where you put it on social media and it just gets way more out of control than it probably has in the past. And then, um, you know, that building also is marked like not safe for entry. So the police responded; it was shut down. And well, yeah, we'll see what happens in the future. There'll be another one this weekend. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm showing my age because I'm like, well, if you're gonna do like you know hold an illegal rave if you want to, uh, <laughs> but like posting about it on social media seems like yeah you're gonna get the cops called. But also that's how uh, people communicate with that's each other now. That's how up. people show up. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, why would you post about it? It's like, well, people aren't really flyering anymore. Probably the way it, it's all it's all about social media. <laughs> and yeah. if you were there, you were probably having a rocking good time, right? Except for the part where it wasn't that safe. You know, it's yeah. all fun and games <laughs> until somebody gets hurt. And I can tell you weren't there because the people who were there don't say rock, rock and, and good, good time. time, everybody. <laughs> Police shut down rock and good time on Northwest Side. That's your next headline. Right, right. You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> All right, so, Patrick, cops were also called over to the West Town neighborhood last weekend. This is another bizarre story. This one, though, involves an art gallery. Yeah, it was an art gallery on Chicago Avenue uh, around 2.45 a.m. Sunday, a pickup truck smashed into the front uh, of this West Town art gallery um, it sort of careened off Chicago Avenue and straight into into the the building. Block Club Chicago reported um, no one was injured, fortunately, uh, but it seems that the gallery is going to be closed for months, according to its owner. Uh, again, through Block Club's reporting that uh, that that there's so much damage, it's going to take a while. It, it's also interesting. The owner um, he told Block Club that that he's heard about you know street racing on that part of Chicago Avenue, so he yeah. thinks that might be the cause some of speculation it. around that. Yeah, he yeah. he he also speculated uh, that uh, that maybe it was intentional. Said you know the way that this truck and I was watching the the security video and and I can't tell, but you know he's saying this came in perpendicular. It looked like an intentional, you know, sort of left turn into into my building. Um, I, I I wouldn't know, but but certainly whenever there's a that kind of a, a, whenever a truck smashes into a building, there's a lot of questions about what happened. For sure. Brand is two firefighters. They made headlines, too. This is after someone locked them inside of a house. What do we know there? So uh, it seems like the firefighters, they were called to the house for, um, I think there might have been a car fire in the garage, right? Um, and I guess firefighters take care of that. Man lures them into the house saying something, something smells like gasoline. So they get inside the house, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, he's pointing towards, I think, what is the basement. And uh, I, I, <laughs> Larry Langford reports that the officers were, I think, a battalion chief maybe uh, and maybe a lieutenant were you know, smart enough to say, OK, you go first. So they get downstairs and realize there's gasoline on the floor um, and they immediately notice the, the smell of the accelerant um, and the man retreating quickly up the stairs. They mm. follow him up the stairs. I think he pulls a knife. Uh, they get trapped downstairs, basically. Wow. So other firefighters outside are able to break some windows, um, pull them out to safety, and then uh, I think the the man is barricaded in the house. Uh, they they you know they're able to break back in, find a weapon. Um, I think he was like trapped in the bathroom with like a, a knife oh and my not a firearm or not a firearm that can fire a I mean, bullet. Why did he do this? Is there any idea of the motive here? No idea of the motive. That wasn't reported. I think he may have had some priors. Um, sounds like someone who may not be well. Um, it, still some questions on that one. Yeah. Obviously, we're thankful that those firefighters <laughs> were yeah. able to be pulled to safety, but it sounds really creepy yeah. and yeah, disturbing. I th- the reporter for police, I think, said that he 
you know, allegedly said he he did he wanted to die was what he said after he had been arrested. Oh, okay. Now now as to why that would, you know, obviously there's something more going on there when you intentionally lure people in and 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 lock them in. He has been arrested, as Brandis was saying, he's charged with attempted murder and is actually due in bond court today. Another reminder of how dangerous a job this is. Our hearts are going out to the family, friends, and colleagues of Chicago Fire Department Lieutenant Kevin Ward, who died this week. This was several weeks after he was injured during a house fire that was near uh, O'Hare Airport. Rest in peace. Uh, Now, before we take another pause, Patrick, uh, former police superintendent Matt Rodriguez died on Wednesday. He was 87 years old. Uh, Tell us a bit more and and what his legacy will be. Yeah, Rodriguez, uh, he was the first Latino ever to lead the Chicago Police Department. Uh, He was appointed by uh, Mayor Daley um, in 1992. And I think his legacy, on on top of being, you know, a... a, uh, um, a pioneer in the in the sense that he was the first Latino leader of the Chicago Police Department. He also was the one who introduced community policing, uh, the concept of community policing and the sort of CAPS program that we have to Chicago and brought brought it to the Chicago Police Department in the 90s. So I think that 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 is the legacy he leaves behind. All right. Let's move on to a recent tragedy that occurred overnight. Two bodies were pulled from Lake Michigan just hours apart this morning. And it's a reminder to all of us of, of the strength and danger of Lake Michigan. But continuing with that, I want to dig into some other stories here because uh, despite it being in the 90s today, there was actually no Friday morning swim club. It usually happens at Montrose Harbor, Brandis. Fill us in about this swim club. What, why weren't they gathering? So uh, this is the third season of the of the Friday morning swim club. Um, and the group has said, you know what? You know, there's been some safety concerns, right? Like, I, th- I think it's gotten pretty popular. Not quite like the rockin' good raves we were talking about, <laughs> but like thousands of swimmers showing up to go for a swim. Um, and I think the park district was saying, hey, this isn't safe and we've got some concerns. Um, and so the group that organizes them um, have said, you know what? We're, we're rethinking it for season four. It's going to come back. Sorry we couldn't do it hmm. um, this time. Time, so stay tuned. Uh, and that's that's kind of where we are right now. They were, um, you know, swimming in the lake weekly at, uh, you know, Montrose Harbor. Um, it sounds like I wonder what you do in a swim club. Like I was the lake, thinking the same thing. Show up and swim. I think so. <laughs> right. You know, I thought uh, here I am. I'm going to I want to bring things down. But I thought Stephanie Coleman from Northwestern uh, this morning w- was tweeting out something that I thought was really interesting about the swim club and sort of how we in the media cover uh, acts of, of lawlessness and how the city interacted with it. I mean, mm-hmm. technically, I'm not trying to be a buzzkill. That was an illegal thing. You're not. I love to swim at that spot. It's actually really good because you can jump in and get all the way in instead of at the beach where you yeah. can only go. Up but to, there like, were your permits shins. that were to be had, and those exactly. weren't applied for. Right. And, and and so to me, it's like yeah, let people have their fun. But they weren't. They were actually breaking the law. And the way that it was treated by us as a city was like, look at this cool, fun thing that like probably wealthier white people are doing, whereas other instances of people breaking the law, if it's younger people, if it's people of color, are not treated with the same sort of whimsy about what fun everyone's having. You do make a good point there. Um, Now, Alice, the organizers of the Chicago Triathlon learned just how treacherous Lake Michigan can be as well. What happened last Sunday? Yeah, um, so this international triathlon was scheduled to have a 0.93-mile swim, um, in addition to like a 25-mile bike ride, six-mile run. Uh, But the waves were were just too high, the currents were too strong, and um, conditions were not safe for swimming, so that part was canceled. Obviously a huge disappointment that you can only do two of the three activities. Although as someone who hates all three, I wouldn't have <laughs> minded. But um, yeah, I was that's... waiting for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, and considering like, you know, how much time you spend training for a triathlon, I can imagine it was probably a big letdown for those. I have never done it and I never will, yeah. but I can imagine that was a big letdown for the folks who are working towards that. Is it just me? I mean, I don't get any urge at all to swim in Lake Michigan. Nope. I was at Promontory Point what? last night. No, I mean, I, I'll, I'll put my feet in, but I don't want to like go laps. full on swimming and doing laps like I went at a pool. Sounds hard. It just sounds like a lot. <laughs> I don't awesome. know how deep that is. Oh, it's awesome. I, I That's the best thing about Chicago is, is, is jumping in the lake. Well, that's not the best thing People underestimate Chicago. how strong the currents are. I was going to say, are. I must have been doing Chicago wrong for the past <laughs> two and a half years. <laughs> like, that's not it's the my best thing about thing Chicago. About yeah, Chicago. Good, I, it's, but it's my, your favorite best. thing. my favorite thing about Chicago. <laughs> I can name some restaurants that might be the best <laughs> exactly. thing about Chicago. Exactly. Like, I, I can name ten other things that, are, that I would rather right, do. Well. <laughs> At least. <laughs> All right. Uh, similar to this Friday morning swim club, there's another event, Patrick, that... I think may have gotten too popular for its own good, and that's the Logan Square Farmer's Market. We talked about this last week on the the, the recap about it being canceled for the first time ever. But by Sunday morning, I'm hearing the market was back on, and they had a celebrity visitor. Yes, they did. Well, yeah, <laughs> I guess it depends how exciting you find Mayor Johnson, but that's a celebrity. Right? We all know who's A-list, right? Yeah, he's an A-lister in Chicago. Sure. Yes, Mayor, Mayor Johnson was at the... Uh, I guess I can't say reopen because it never actually closed, but the the saved uh, Sunday Logan Square Farmers Market. Um, this was a case where, as you said, it got you know according to organizers, almost had gotten too big for its own good. I yeah. think they were up to like, I want to remember. I think they were up to like fifteen thousand people every Sunday, which is like. I mean, what was it about this farmers market? Has anyone been? Well, so so it's it's. How do you get so popular as a my, farmers market? It's my neighborhood farmers market. You know, my wife Mina Bloom reports for Block Club Chicago. She's the one who broke the story that they were going to close this down. So I got to shout her out. Absolutely. We, we certainly go. Although I haven't gone in. Kind of a while. I'm, I sound like Yogi Berra, but I'm basically like nobody goes anymore. It's too crowded. It, it really does feel that way. And you know, there was a, there was like things on TikTok about about it being a place to like meet singles, um, which I you know uh, people. Okay. I, I saw know, a headline I that referenced it's, it's it being essentially a say no more. You yeah, said the words. It's, it's essentially TikTok like a dog show too. But but it's a great farmers market. I love it. Organizers said it, because it was so big, it was dangerous. They wanted. Uh, it is like this bizarre intersection that it's at. That's already kind of a dangerous place with cars and pedestrians, mm -hmm. and then you put 15,000 people there. Wow, I hope I have that number right because I'm using it a lot. But you put 15,000 well, people there. Your wife broke the story, and she will be really <laughs> upset be when you get home. Right. Call her. This is her. If this is misinformation, it's her fault. Text uh, her. No. <laughs> um, so they were saying we need to shut down part of the road here to make it safe. The city denied that. So they said, fine, we won't have a market. At the last minute, they the city did agree to shut down the, did agree to shut down the road. They had the market. Vendors said it felt safer, and and uh, and and I think people were able to spread out a little bit more. Yeah. Well, Patrick says this is his neighborhood market, but do do you too, Brandis and Alice, do you have a favorite farmers market that you frequent? I don't have a favorite, um, but I live in Evanston, so on the occasion that we can get our kids to cooperate so that we can all go, <laughs> then the family will go to the Evanston Farmer's Market, uh, or usually my husband loves it, so usually he's the one going, and he comes back with like a bag full of vegetables that he's oh. all excited about. Shout out to the Evanston Farmer's right. Market. Mm -hmm. Alice? Uh, I I am hoping to go one of these days. <laughs> 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 don't Dream worry. big. Alice, I'm right with you, girl. This is Let's add that to the, add Lake Michigan and Farmer's Market, <laughs> farmer's market. to the list. Jump into I... the lake with your heirloom tomatoes. <laughs> uh, you're just in time for a busy holiday weekend. I'm looking at you, Brandis, because I know that flight attendants, they were picketing at O'Hare. Talk about timing, but I mean, 
they've got some serious concerns. Yeah, they're picketing, um, but it, so flight attendants picketing. They have uh, the American Airlines flight attendants have voted for a strike. I think like ninety nine percent of those who voted voted in favor of the strike. Now, you know, this is coming at the same time that, you know, you've got pilots, I think, at um, Southwest Airlines, as well as flight attendants at United Airlines, also picketing. And uh, I think there may have been some other strike votes. I think somebody else just came to a contract agreement earlier this week. So obviously, you know, it sounds like there's some unrest um, among, you know, pilots and flight attendants as far as um, staffing goes. And with with regard to the pilots, like, there's a shortage of of pilots, right? Mm -hmm. So it gets a little scary. Thing is, voting to take a strike, they are leveraging, you know, their ability to show management that they're very serious. But that doesn't mean a strike is imminent. Federal mediators have to get involved um, before they can actually go out on strike because, obviously, that would be detrimental uh, to the airline industry and to all of our travel plans if, if a strike should actually happen. Speaking of travel plans, anybody got plans? This weekend, I'm so excited about my plans to Where are you stay going? at home. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually bought that. I was like, "Where are you going?" No, right I am ahead. actually excited about it. Sometimes, don't blame you. Sometimes those are the best plans, yeah. right? To have no plans. Traveling anywhere, Alice? Uh, just gonna have good night's sleep every night before <laughs> budget season begins. Oh man, spoken like she a true city B-word. hall reporter. Oh. <laughs> Brandis. Budget season. We might do a day trip. It's not, we're not. We haven't figured out where we're gonna go yet. So that's that's about as far as I've gotten. I'm, I think I'm taking my kids to the zoo tomorrow. Wish me luck. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I made fun of you there, Patrick, but I'm right with you. I'm not doing a thing, and I am loving it. Well, sounds like we are all going to have a rockin' good day. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. We're not going to let you forget that, Brandon. No. <laughs> uh, both the airports and the roads, they're expected to be busy this holiday weekend. Uh, For those drivers out there, though, there is another headline to share with you all. Starting September 1st, so that would be today, you'll need to make an appointment to renew your driver's license. So is that a good idea? (laughs) Now you can't just roll into the DMV and, you know, take a number and sit down. I think the idea is supposed to be, look, you can make an appointment, and when you get there, things will just happen on time, and you won't have to wait in line because, the like, so I have au pairs for childcare, and they're always international, obviously, and they have to get a driver's license. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, because they're not ready for this, the DMV, no matter where you live— is lousy, right? I've lived in multiple different states, and you're going to have to wait in line. And when you get to the front of the line, they're going to be kind of cranky. Mm-hmm. And although, uh, you know, they're working very hard, obviously, <laughs> but like it's just, it's kind of a thing, yeah. right? And so I think this is supposed to help overcome that. The line won't be ridiculously long. Um, you won't have to wait. Uh, and because you've made an appointment, yeah. uh, there are certain appointments that you don't there and there and the secretary of state's office is encouraging people to if you know certain steps you can do online, you don't even have to come in. Um, but for the things that I mean, you need that to come in for driver's test, et cetera, you can make an appointment for that. Um, and they're implementing that at 44 um, uh, of the busiest DMVs across the state, which is all of the ones in Chicago and Chicago all, suburbs. Yeah, starting today. I mean, I feel like I. I have to think back at how many times I've actually gone to the DMV without an appointment. I, I don't know if it's like Im- I went immigrant life. Ago. Yeah, but <laughs> I, that work I, out I always you? have an appointment, though. For some yeah, reason. well, I so always have to make one. And they implemented that, I think, during COVID was was making appointments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I went two weeks ago, I went to the downtown one across. I think they moved it temporarily across the Thompson Center. Um, lines are really long. And by the end, there was like a woman like just losing it, like screaming, crying. I don't know. Like if she had a million people in her line today. Like like the guards had to, so I don't know. It can be a tough experience. It's a lot. 
Yeah, I think it sounds like a great idea, and I will think that up until like a year from now when I just show up completely forgetting about this. Seems <laughs> like a good idea. About and then you get down there and you're annoyed. Yeah, right. exactly. So it'll be like it'll be interesting to see how it works out, right? If making an appointment is actually a time saver. Yeah. Well, as we start to wrap up our conversation, folks, I'm wondering if there are any stories that really stuck out to you this week. Maybe they surprised you. Uh, maybe you thought that they were underreported. Patrick? Yeah, uh, actually, our colleague Chip Mitchell had a story out today sort of looking at uh, murder numbers in Chicago through the first eight months. We're down 21% from where we were in 2021, which was like this historic high. So Mm -hmm. murder numbers, are they've been falling for the last 20 months, which is good news. We're still considerably elevated compared to we were like where we were like ten years ago. So well before the pandemic. Yeah. So basically, before uh, honestly, before the Laquan McDonald video was released, Mm. if you go back to 2015 and before, uh, we were averaging around 300 murders by this time in the year, like Mm -hmm. through the end of August. Now we're 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 at about 420 uh, so far this year. Jeez, my goodness! Anything that sticks out to you, Brandis? Um, uh, yeah, actually, so I, I was just talking to someone about this this morning. It's it's a story that uh, your former colleague, Shannon Heffernan, did in uh, in conjunction with Carlos Belaceros at Injustice Watch. And it's about the Joe Coleman Medical Release Act yes. um, that allows... That was a big um, one. Yeah, that was a big one. I think, you know, didn't get enough pickup. Uh, the act itself allows... Um, people who are incarcerated and are, you know, meet certain requirements, but they're likely terminally ill, very sick, um, can't do a lot of tasks for themselves, um, allows them to petition the Illinois uh, Prisoner Review Board uh, for early release. Mm. And um, their research found that it's not really working the way advocates had advocated for it to work, right? Which was to release a lot more people. Very few of them are getting uh, allowed. That's a big story. You worked with Shannon on this one, didn't you, Patrick? I edited Shannon on that, and and, uh, it was her final story for us here at WBEZ. And and, and actually, this is giving me the opportunity to say what an incredible colleague she was and how much we're going to miss her. Shannon is awesome. I I told her, I'm like, don't be a stranger to reset. (laughs) (laughs) Don't think because you leave. Like, I will will hunt you down. (laughs) She's at the Marshall Project. You can find (laughs) her there. I do also just want to say... Uh, I got a text from Mina, my wife, and 15,000 is the right number. Uh, for the, for thank you, Mina, for the fact check. Yes. We were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> we could not leave without finding out how many people would go to the Logan Square Farmer's Market. Uh, Alice, anything coming to mind as far as stories this week that um, stuck I, out? I guess I'm not new this week, but just bring Chicago home. The mayor and his allies are going to make their biggest push yet to try to put it on the March ballot. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot of probably campaigning around that on both sides. Um, and, yeah, it just remains to be seen whether voters in Chicago will uh, be willing to um, raise uh, the tax on certain real estate sales to help fund homelessness services or whether they'll think that that um, would um, hamper the real estate market. Yeah. Well, looking ahead to next week, what are you all going to be keeping an eye on? Can uh- Candace. Brandis. It is not the first time it's uh, happened. <laughs> Don't make it worse, Patrick. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I, I honestly, like, I would like to look a little bit more at the Joe Coleman research that, you know, our colleagues have already done uh, and see what else can be talked about there. Um, and other than that, like, the news just kind of comes at me. <laughs> I just let it wash over that. me, right? Let's like, talk about that. I don't know what's happening. Anchor to anchor. What is that <laughs> exactly? like? Exactly. It just, it just kind of comes at me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, let's take that in and see what it's about and, and digest it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got a lot. On your plate, Alice. I can only imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Mayor Johnson. That's Um, funny. Yeah, I guess uh, one thing to look out for, and this is on your beat, too. Um, I think Larry Snelling is up for his first committee vote approval next week. Um, oh, is that, that happening? Ca- that kind of caps off I was off wondering first... when we were going to have some movement there. Yeah, yeah I think it's next week. Um, but, yeah, I think that caps off this new process, um, the, whole, the city's going through and weather, um, yeah, and how it will play out. 
Yeah, the new police superintendent, right? Yeah, I I will be watching for that as well. Uh, and you know, we are. It's a couple weeks away, but but this month, uh, cash bail is ending in Illinois. So oh, yes. so doing a lot of reporting and prep for that. September eighteenth will be the first day with this new system. And this weekend, I'm watching uh, the U.S. Open, Coco Golf Place tonight. <laughs> oh, yes. So and, you do yeah. have plans. I've got big plans. Yeah, <laughs> and you've got your your calendar, your alarm set on September eighteenth. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. That is uh, WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith, uh, Chicago Tribune political reporter Alice Yin, and Brandis Friedman, co-anchor and correspondent of WTTW's Chicago Tonight. What a fun bunch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrea Guthman and edited by Dan Tucker and Ethan Schwab. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend and look out for a bonus podcast tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning.